0: hey everyone welcome back to episode 59 of the julia laroche show today we are joined by larry mcdonald he is the new york times best-selling author of a colossal failure of common sense the inside story of the collapse of lehman brothers this book is an absolute must read it came out back in 2009 and the cfa institute recently ranked it as one of the top 20 best business books of all time. So definitely check it out if you have not done so already. Larry is also the founder of the Bear Traps Report, which is one of the most robust institutional independent research platforms. He also runs a chat on Bloomberg with 650 institutional folks in 20 plus countries. So there's definitely a lot of great insights Happening amongst those conversations. In this episode, Larry explains how trillions of dollars are currently misallocated. We also talk about why inflation will likely remain stickier going forward. We also talk about opportunities in energy, fixed income, rare earth metals, and more. And we also discussed some of the themes that are going to surface in his new book. I can't wait to read this one when it comes out. There was some really fascinating stuff that came up in this conversation, including you know some of the potential consequences of the fiscal monetary policies given our colossal debt situation. really enjoyed this conversation with Larry. I learned a lot, and I think you will too. Larry McDonald founder of The Bear Traps Report, which is one of the most robust institutional independent research platforms out there, and also the best-selling author of the book, A Colossal Failure of Common Sense, The Inside Story of the Collapse of Lehman Brothers, which I should also note was named one of the top 20 business books by the CFA Institute. It is such an honor to have you on the show, and Larry, it is great to see you again. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Julia. It's been a long time. I miss our conversation. So looking forward to getting, getting into it.
0: Likewise. And I was listening to the audiobook version of your book and congratulations, by the way, being named one of the top 20 by the CFA Institute. And usually with this show, I like to kind of start with the macro picture, but I'm just dying to ask you something because when I was reading the book, there was something in there that I'm like, okay, I just need to hear the story here. You are hustled to get that first job on Wall Street and I want you to tell it for the folks if you don't mind the pizza box story Incredible. Can you just like share um, where you got the idea of what was it um, because you weren't really getting any responses so you started going around doing pizza deliveries of sorts.
1: yeah, you know it's um when you're younger uh, sometimes luck shuts the door and you gotta come in through the window as Doyle Bronson used to say, and uh, the famous poker player. But, you know, your, your life in coming up through any career is about there's a wall of inertia all over the world. All, there's all these invisible walls. And, you know, you as a younger person, you kind of come up against these walls over and over again. And it's just about having that burning desire to break through them. And to get through them no matter what you have to do. And sometimes in more creative ways or more fun. But when I was coming out of college, the SNL crisis was pretty nasty. And it wasn't as bad as Lehman. But in some parts of the country, it might have been. Because it was more spread out. And it was pretty bad in New England, where I was from. Because Bank of New England went under. and, And so... You know, I, I tried to get a job. I sent down my, you know, my resume to all these different banks, and, and I got rejected at least at least seventy five times. And so I um, I wanted to get into finance one way or another, either the institutional side or retail. And uh, at that point, in time it was a lot easier to get into the retail side of the business. So I uh, dressed up uh, as a you know pizza delivery guy, and I wanted to get in and try to sneak my way into. The Merrill Lynch office in Philadelphia, and talked to some of the senior people, uh, and I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to develop mentors, and I was just, you know, uh, nothing was going to stop me. And uh, kind of, I got up there, and I got in the bathroom. I took off my little overcoat. that had a suit underneath, and these kind of senior guys came up uh, behind me. And they were like, "What are you doing?" You know, and I told them how I got in, and they were they were blown away. They were just blown away in, in terms of like humor, right? They thought it was so, so they brought me on the trading floor and we went back and forth about what it takes to get into the business. And they, um, you know, they taught me a lot of things. It was kind of like, and those were some friendships that from that day really helped me over over those years that followed.
0: Yeah. I think that was probably like the most ingenious idea I've ever heard for like how to Get at least I mean, yeah because sorry you, like you were faced with a lot of rejections and just finding like a creative way to get in there and hey, I well, would have taken the pizza
1: yeah um, and back then um you know the buildings in New York and Philadelphia today have these advanced security systems, so you can't possibly get in uh without like signing at the front desk and then having a code they have to press to get into the elevator back then if you, if you just kind of with a little creativity you could you could really get in and meet just about anybody you wanted to meet. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love it. Um, just to recap, though, like so, you did, uh, you did get to Merrill Lynch. Can you recap a bit about your background for folks who might not be as familiar, uh, with you? Just, um, kind of share a bit about your career, um, where you've been and how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, I started off in the retail side of the business in the '90s, and it was, um, it was a period of massive disruption. The internet was just born. And it kind of really shocked me because I started to build a decent business, but then in the mid '90s, it, it was very clear that the internet was coming. And then, what what might that do to a retail business? Like, so in other words, if you have clients, you're thinking about online brokerage. You're thinking about um, clients, you know, with technology may not need the retail advisor as much. So I kind of hedged myself. In after about four years, I. I had a friend of mine in in, um, New York and Philadelphia, and we started a website called convertbond.com, which was the first website in the world that brought institutional investors and retail investors, the entire US convertible securities universe, and we and we, we actually made a decent amount of money. Um we would have been better, been better better off creating a dating website, right? You know, or something like that. But we sold it to Morgan Stanley in October of ninety-nine. Uh, and that was kind of giving my big my big break. That that got me from retail into the institutional side of the business into trading. And that was kind of my my big break. But October of ninety-nine was a good time to sell. I know we were very, very lucky.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely a good time uh to to sell. Um I want to talk about today. Um, and we can get into like your work too, but just let's kind of frame it up. Let's do the big picture, the macro view. What are the things that you are thinking about the most today?
1: Well, so because of where I started, my goal every week, every month, every day, every morning is to democratize information. And I try to do that on Twitter, but I'm really proud of the fact that we built this institutional business. And when I was coming up in the business, a lot of times, when I when I was at Merrill, when I was at Lehman, I saw like we would have this incredible research on the institutional side that are what we call proprietary research that wasn't really published. That would go out to the institutions first and really kind of get picked over um, from the credit clients, which what we call. Clients that more more interested in the fixed income part of the capital structure, so bonds versus equities, and then they would have kind of repackage it and get it get the research out like a month later, two months later to the to the retail audience and the high net worth investors. And so, uh, what we do every day here at the Bear Trap Support is we run a live conversation with about 650 institutional investors in 20 plus countries, and. These are hedge funds, mutual funds, pension funds that are looking at asset prices during the day. Like today, for example, um, break-evens are really your ultimate inflation expectation indicator. And what's fascinating through this whole inflation cycle is inflation expectations on the long end have really been they have been anchored. Like so Yale Blank, but the Fed, Ms. Brainerd, and the different Fed governors that Ms. Brainerd just left the Fed – for the White House, but uh, Governor Brainerd and all the Fed governors really have pounded the table that long-term inflation expectations have been well, and they said, "I mean, how many times have you heard this? Well-anchored, right? And that goes back to the 70s and 80s where that was the first time that the only time in my lifetime where long-term inflation expectations became unanchored was during that period. And we're kind of in that period now where They've been able to anchor the inflation expectations, but then they soften the path to touch. Uh, some people think maybe a little early and now gas is up 17%. Gasoline is up 17% from the lows. Oils, a lot, a lot of a lot of things are kind of um, you know, things like wages, like companies like Home Depot are spending a billion dollars, $1 billion, $1 billion on, on extra wage compensation. And so the problem is if you don't, and you really need eight, nine, ten percent unemployment to kill inflation. And so if you don't kill it, it just um it, it kind of gets into the seat cushions and it sticks around. And then all of a sudden, one day, long-term inflation expectations become unanchored. And we're we're getting that's one of the conversations today is that this is starting, it hasn't happened yet, but but for the first time, we're starting to see like wow. One year inflation expectations have moved up over 140 basis points since January. Five years have moved up a lot. The ten years haven't moved up as much, but something's going on where in the stickiness of inflation is like putting its roots into the market beneath the surface, and it's going to be with us for a while.
0: Yeah, I want wait. I want to hear a bit more on that, like the stickiness of it. Let's flesh it out a bit more. Um, do you have a number in mind? what are you thinking about as it relates to inflation and being more pervasive sticky
1: well one of the things so our next book is about this concept where and it'll be out in the fourth quarter in in worst case in the first quarter next year but this is kind of a preview so because for the last 15 20 years inflation expectations have been well anchored there's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in what we call financial assets, so bonds, growth stocks. There's just a ton of wealth that's in a world that's designed for inflation normalization down to 2% or less, right? So because every recession we've had since the 80s, uh, inflation has been able to normalize pretty much you know, since maybe the 90s. Uh, Lehman, COVID, there's been a normalization well below 2%, in some cases, 1%. And in that world, financial assets, growth stocks, uh, long duration plays do wonderful. And, and so if inflation expectations are starting to become unanchored, and we normalize at 4% instead of 2 and we hang around there for a while, Julia if that's the case there's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that are misallocated and that and that we're that's starting we're starting to see a rotation like we've all, we already know that a year ago today the NASDAQ 100 had 20 trillion dollars in it right 20 trillion and that's come down to about 15 or 16. uh probably probably more like 15 50. So the $5 trillion has already left the NASDAQ 100, and it's gone into some other things, you know, global growth equities. You European equities are making kind of all-time highs because those stocks are more value-based, right? So we're, I think we're at the genesis of, or maybe the second, third ending of you know, this transition to a world where inflation normalizes at a much higher level, and therefore there's an all- a reallocation of assets globally.
0: Okay, that this is fascinating. Uh, and that's why I love this show because I get to listen to uh, folks like yourself and help others understand this. You're saying um, trillions of dollars right now are misallocated. Um, help me understand um, what are the what are markets missing or what are investors missing? Um, I would love to kind of you know tease this out a little bit because you know, maybe like the everyday person might not understand this concept of, yeah. um, you know, it's starting to be unanchored.
1: Well, um, there's a, what's called, there are models that models equity valuations. And if in, if disinflation is very certain, then long during, then the growth stocks or the net present value, all future cash flows, right in a disinflate in, in a world with deflation or disinflation the net present value of all future cash flows think of like netflix or any any company that produces cash and retains that cash if you have a disinflationary world and you're producing lots of cash over 10 years and you're retaining that cash that cash is worth more right but if you if if you have another if you have the same type of company and your net present value of all future cash flows in an inflationary world, and you're retaining that cash. But if it's in a world with inflation that's more certain, right? If you have very certain inflation that's anywhere between four to five percent, though the, the 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 modeling of those types of companies collapses. So you can have a, a company like that Microsoft that might trade at 30, 35 times earnings or NVIDIA. 50 times EBITDA. In, in a disinflationary world, that's okay. And believe it or not, you can actually make money because you can buy you can buy a company at 40 times EBITDA and sell it at 50 times EBITDA. Because in a disinflationary world, those future cash flows are worth more, and then there becomes like this, this game. And the Fed doesn't remember, in a disinflationary world, the Fed's on the sidelines, right? Um, in a disinflationary world, the Fed's not kind of lurking, like, oh, you know, we're gonna be. You know, potentially coming back here with more hikes in a disinflationary world, the Fed can easily just be done. But in, a, in an inflationary world, the Fed has to hang out. Let me give you an example today, the, the six month treasury. So, say, say you have a million dollars, so you're sitting in uh, investor sitting at home, wealthy investor with a million bucks. Today, that investor can get $51,000 in six months from the US Treasury in interest, 51000 on a million, $1 million. Put it in a, a T-bill for six months, and you're going to have 51000 of interest in six months, guaranteed by Uncle Sam. A year ago today, that same investor was looking at 6000 of interest, $6,000, right? So what's happening is as inflation has become more certain, uh, the Fed's pushed up the front end over the yields, those front end short-term yields. And that's pulling a lot of money away from stocks for the first time in on. In most people's lifetimes, like most investors are probably 30, 35, 40 or less. Right. So that cash component is now and inflation is now presenting a threat to growth stocks that wasn't there before. And now people have to reallocate into other types of of concepts that are going to benefit from or that will that will do better in that kind of sustained inflationary world.
0: Okay, there are a lot of again. This is the great, um, more interesting things. But you just said, okay, if you had a a million in, in uh like in six months uh t in six month T bills, you could get you said fifty one thousand in interest off of them. Can you repeat what you said? I just want to hear it. One yeah. More time. So yeah. So let's just
1: say you uh, married couple with a million bucks, you can put in a six month T bill today and get fifty one thousand dollars of interest on a million, so that's 5.1% for six months. And so that's that's the case today. But for the last 10 years, especially the last two years, that same retired couple with a million dollars was getting about 6,000 a year, especially like 2021, 2000, beginning of 22. And so those that retired couple was forced into all kinds of crazy investments. But now um, the S&P is uh, basically unchanged for two years. Um, and so there's a, a wall of supply above us, right? So as the market rallies, there's a lot of people that are kind of like flat for two years. And as the market rallies, they can get their money, they can get even, right? And so, so you had a million bucks in stocks two years ago. Now that you're getting, you were down 400,000, market's rallied. And you can get that money back potentially. And what are you going to do? Okay, you got your money back. You can keep it in stocks, or you can put a million bucks in a T bill and get fifty one grand in six months, which is like car, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that that's a little bit that's a that's a threat to stocks that we haven't seen that, that most of our your our viewers have, have never seen before. Like, so you got to be. It's not that you should be bearish. You just have to think about okay the average investor today can take 51,000 can take a million bucks and put into bonds short term risk free bonds and get $51,000 per million of interest whereas a year ago a year ago that same person was dealing with 6,000 uh 6,000 year of interest hmm. or maybe 6 to 10 whatever it was but it was it was much lower
0: interesting okay um so to kind of delve into this notion, too, like that trillions are currently misallocated. Um, Where should folks, or I guess in your, I don't know if you want to go there, but what are are some of like the areas for allocation? What is interesting? Where are the opportunities right now?
1: Well, you know, if you look at the planet Earth, right, Um, in a disinflationary world, that's been very certain deflation, certain deflation. There's been a lot of money that's moved into the United States because we're the growth stock king of planet Earth. So you have this situation in a certain deflation for like the last 10, 15, 20 years. Um, what happens is all the money, a lot of the wealth in the world went into the United States of America, which is a good thing for the stock market. And because there's a lot of growth stocks here. And But if you look around the world, in the United Kingdom, Europe, there's a lot of like very large value stocks, BP. Um, And say, look at the EWU portfolio. That portfolio has Shell, it's got all these like global value, plays, Glencore. um, And so these global value portfolios um, or just global stocks in general, like global stocks that are outside of the United States and other developed markets, the last like five, 10 years, the US market was trading at like 18 to to 25 times earnings. And the other developed markets of the world were trading at 10 to 15 times earnings. And so there's some global value stock portfolios like just to keep it simple, like the EWU, which is a, a beautiful basket of value companies that are hard asset driven, like a lot of commodity type companies. And those stocks are trading at, at very cheap valuations. And because of that, like I said, because of that more certain inflation, there's a move out of kind of the United States into, and that's why you get France and Germany and the UK are breaking out to all time highs, whereas the NASDAQ and the SP are flat for two years and running into massive supply. If I had a chart, I can show you, but you just, you, you have like literally trillions of dollars of wealth. Uh, that's dead money for two years in U S stocks and people, there's an old saying, people want to get even and get out.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to, you mentioned you're writing a new book and I don't want you to have to give away everything, but what are, what are you writing about? You you kind of mentioned, I just want to hear a bit more. Like, What are some of the big themes to you that are really interesting right now? Well, you know, we go back to
1: Lehman, right? So the first book, I was a trader at Lehman. I brought people inside the bank and we're kind of heading toward the iceberg, right? And, and it was one of those moments that you'll never forget you're heading toward the iceberg. you're I'm on the I was on the Titanic, Lehman Brothers. and uh, you know the in that case, the Titanic never swerved at all. I went right into the went right into the iceberg. And and so there was a sovereign bailout of the banks, like the governments of the world bailed out the banks. Then you know, COVID hits uh, more than a decade later, and the bailout, uh, the bailout for the Lehman financial crisis was about, in terms of total fiscal, total monetary bailout, where the sovereign governments bailed things up, was about two and a half trillion dollars. Right, two and a half trillion and this is part of my book where we go into the COVID era and it's a fiscal and monetary bailout of lockdowns of experimental lockdowns. And we can debate whatever, whether or not they did politicians the right or wrong thing. The bottom line is they spent 10 trillion bucks and 40% of all dollars ever created 40% of all dollars us dollars ever created were done. So in 2020 and 21, under President Trump and President Biden, so it's a bipartisan thing. And so that's a sovereign bail. And then now you have these energy uh, situations around the world where, you know, there were very high gas and oil prices in Europe. There was massive recession risk. And what what did the governments do? They essentially printed money and they paid people's electric bills around the world, California. And they didn't really allow the traditional, normally what would happen is a business cycle, oil prices would go up they create a recession. um, And that would create kind of deflation. This time around, it was the third sovereign bailout. So the sovereign governments bailed out Lehman, they bailed out COVID, and now they bailed out, it's like almost an $800 billion bailout uh, of, of, of energy, of energy prices. And, and so so it's the three big sovereign bailouts have created a lot more government debt. so the next crisis the Lehman crisis was more of bank balance sheets. The next uh, crisis that's coming at us is more um, from a government point of view so there's so much more government debt and there's so much more central banks that are that have that debt that are holding that are wearing those losses because the interest interest rates have gone up and so it's the, the book's about kind of, okay, it's a new world with a lot more government debt. And that means you're going to have a lot higher interest rates going forward. Like we've permanently come into a new higher interest rate regime.
0: Yeah. Um, Does that mean like at some point, do you think we get like a debt jubilee or something? Like what what are you kind of thinking? Like how do you think aside from like higher rates going forward or being like the Kind of norm going forward. How do you think this kind of plays out?
1: The debt jubilee thing is 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 it's, there's no question it will it will come into some large developed market country where be in the United, United Kingdom and we already had a little bit of, a little bit of a preview of that in October uh, in the United Kingdom where the long end of, of the curve uh, exploded higher and even the front end too and there was massive like they, they put forth a plan for this new government and they, it wasn't really thought through relative to how the bond market would react. And the central bank was promising uh, to do quantitative tightening. Um, and in other words, the central banks can suppress, Bank of Japan has proven the central banks can suppress interest rates for a long time, but inflation was running 8 9 10 12% in the United Kingdom. So the central bank wasn't allowed to uh, really step step in and really hold bond yields down. So we had a period where within like 20 days or 15 days, uh, interest rates in the United Kingdom were just in a spectacular parabolic move higher. I mean, just like, and, and that's very, very destruct- dest- destructive to a lot of different businesses. So that, that situation's coming, but governments and central banks can do a lot of things to, to push it out. And, um, but at, at the end of the day, you know, we have in the U S government, we have, um, the interest as a percentage of the budget. Um, it, it, like to say within the last year, it was 8%. So if you take the United States budget and you take the interest on the debt, it was 8%. And if the fed, you know, the fed's pounding their chest that they're going to, fight inflation, they're gonna kill inflation, they're gonna to try to keep rates up here at 5 to 6% and kill inflation, right? The problem is if you do that, and this is this is interesting because on March 7th, Powell's gonna be on the House and the Senate floor, and he's gonna give you for the first time, he's gonna get a lot of hard questions about this. Because if you keep the Fed funds rate up here for 12 months, Julia, a year from today, your interest as a percentage of this budget spending, it's going to be like 15%. So from like eight to 15, you know what that does? That wipes out a lot of like fiscal uh, discretionary spending. Um, you're talking about uh, capital that's supposed to go into uh, scientific uh, scientific research projects, uh, medical projects, all kinds of things, right? Um, now, granted, a huge punch, punch parts of the budget are non-discretionary, which are just automatic you know like Social security and cost of living adjustments and so a lot of the budget is 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 non-discretionary but that discretionary component is is pretty large I think it's like 27 20 20 around I think 22 percent that is that that's at risk and so that could create a real problem within the next 12 months if the Fed were to keep rates up here
0: And what do you think do you think they'll keep them up there? what are your th- like do you have outlook on where they'll keep uh, rates
1: yeah the, the problem is the, the you don't kill and like wall street's been selling us on like the last 4 weeks that a soft no a soft landing or a no landing is a good thing and because it, it protects earnings and the like. but it's it's really a bad thing because in a soft landing or a no landing without it without without 9 10% unemployment you don't really kill inflation, and so what happens is inflation comes down, and then it either bounces or stays very high. And so, if if the Fed, if the Fed doesn't take rates really high and crash the economy, they're just not going to kill inflation. And so right now they're trying to be cute with it. I understand; we all understand why they don't want to create a Lehman Brothers, right? But they. The more cute they get, um, interest rates are so high that um, investors right now, like I said, have an extra fifty billion of interest a year. That's that's just from the high net worth individuals have an extra fifty billion. They're spending that money. That's why LVMH is at all time highs, Louis Vuitton, Tiffany, and you get all these like stocks like Ferrari is up. You look at Ferrari's up fourteen percent year over year. And big lots and target are down like, and Macy's are down like 20 to 50%. So the bottom 50% of people is really, really hurting. And the top is is doing very well. Now that gets you back to to what the Fed can do. If the Fed doesn't kill inflation, uh, they keep inflation up here. And that creates more pain for the bottom 50%. And so they're probably going to try to push it as hard as they can cuz the election's still 2 years away right if so they can really push it here uh and push us into a recession and try to really kill inflation that way that's what they're trying to do um but they they paused a little bit 2 months ago like in October and and that created this revival in, in inflation
0: yeah you mentioned something interesting like ferrari doing well lvmh these ultra luxury type brands and then uh you're more like everyday retailers uh not doing so great and that kind of as you were pointing out gets it like the the divisions i guess more like economic uh so like divisions here do you think much about like that like what because if you go back to even like the financial crisis um they were in like the aftermath of that and it kind of feels like i'm just like extrapolating here and i want you to explain it and is it like we're sailing toward another, maybe bigger iceberg here? And what about the kind of like undercurrents? Um, more of like the social fabric uh here when you're you're mentioning um kind of like the divide, if you will.
1: You've got a great sniffer because where you're going with this is so I can tell it's you're you're such a seasoned veteran to see what you're connecting like um occupy Wall Street, right? Yeah. So they, they bailed out the banks, and then there was this massive social revolution what was called Occupy Wall Street and had a, an incredible grassroots organization, and it was very, uh, it was it was it was pretty crazy. I and mean, you had a, a lot of people that were there was inequality was very high because of the the crisis. and the, the bankers were getting these bailouts because they needed to save the system. So they bailed out all the banks. And so they took federal dollars and they, they bailed out all these banks. It was trillions, over a trillion dollars. It says like 2.5 trillion of fiscal and monetary. But think of what's happening now. So think of what's happening now. Very similar, same thing has happened. Instead of the financial crisis to, try to fight that off, now they're trying to kill inflation. So they push the Fed funds rate up from 1% to 2% to 3% to 4% to 5%. What that does is if you're like I said, if you're a wealthy American, you're sitting in the with millions of dollars in the bank. Every million dollars you have is now paying $51,000 a year, right? Like we just talked about before. That group's doing great. And that group is benefiting from the Fed and from government policy. Now think about the bottom 50%. There's $4.8 trillion in financing, auto financing, home loans, credit cards. 4.8 trillion. And the, the problem is when you pump up the front end of the curve, um, credit card credit card uh, interest is, I think at all time highs right now. And during Lehman, it was like 14, 15%, right in that, in that period afterwards. Now you're up near 20, 21, 22. So the average person, the inequality that's developing because in the case of the Lehman crisis, there was this inequality. That, that developed because of the crisis and Occupy Wall Street exploded. And now what you're getting at is it's really like Robin Hood reversed, where the little guy is getting hit by inflation. They're getting hit by this higher on that $4.9 trillion every 1% up. It gives you, I think, it's $40 trillion of extra interest costs for the little guy and gal. So every one percent that they took interest rates up, it cost the little guy a gal or the middle class family, all that whole group, an extra forty billion, okay? Because they're raising that interest cost on credit cards, on on home, you know, the, 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 home equity lines of credit, everything. Whereas the, the larger, the, the top thirty percent is sitting on so much cash. I think it's like one point three trillion of excess savings that's in the hands of not the little guy gal it's really in the hands of like the, the top 30 percent. and god bless those people they've saved their money they've they've, they've made a lot of money in the private sector they've done well but it's just like you got one group that's getting this huge windfall of excess interest and you have the bottom 50 percent that's getting this uh just punched to the stomach of inflation and higher interest which is uh creating this, this like you said like what you were alluding to is like this kind of like occupy wall street like 2.0 in some other way, like some other social revolution is going to form.
0: Yeah. And then I even wonder, you know, like um, with this goal of wanting to like even boost unemployment uh, in order to bring down inflation, who's who's going to get hurt in that scenario or who are the folks who are most vulnerable in that scenario as well? It's just something to think about.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is why you really want to watch uh, the Senate testimony on the 7th because These are the types of questions that are gonna get more and more. um, It's gonna be a lot more of a attention show on Capitol Hill from Elizabeth Warren up against uh, Chair Powell.
0: Yeah. If you had to ask um, Fed Chair Powell a question, if you were uh, one of the folks on Capitol Hill, um, and maybe sorry to put you on the spot, what would be your question for him?
1: Well, I would get into what we were talking about before and say, you know, Mr. Powell, we, we know that it takes very high interest rates to kill inflation. We know, looking back at the last 70 years, that inflation has never been killed without, in, without the Fed funds rate being at or near or above the rate of inflation. So right now, inflation is still six and a half. Fed funds rate is a little bit less than five. So we're not in anywhere near the historic kill zone. And therefore, if interest as a percentage of the budget is right now 8%, and you push interest rates up to 6.5% to try to kill inflation, and you take that interest as a percentage of the federal budget, and you drive it to like 18%, um, that's an enormous burden to, uh, on not just unemployment that you we know, cause and, and that type of crisis to kill inflation. But it's also you're you're wiping out a lot of federal spending um, on the discretionary side, and, and, and I would just like to, I would like to see him just answer the question as to like acknowledge that they really can't. My question would be like, is it when you say that you can keep Fed funds right here for a year at this level, isn't that kind of a lie? Because if you do. The political pressure uh against the Fed is gonna really be pretty strong a, a year from now.
0: Yeah. Um, I want to go back to, and you mentioned it, you're right, there has been a narrative um floated around lately of like a no landing uh scenario. We've obviously heard um the soft landing scenario, um, and obviously also the hard landing. Where do you, where do you kind of stand? Um amongst those scenarios? Do you have uh, thoughts on what kind of landing, if we will see one, what that could look like, one that you're leaning more toward?
1: Well, they have to do some more now because inflation has bounced. And so they're definitely going to create a hard landing. But we had a nice little period there where there was some hope that they wouldn't have to create a hard landing. And the remember the fed governors when they talk to us through the media they're like the pilot on the airplane right they're they're not going to say that that we have engine trouble uh, 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 you know they're going to they're going to say that we think that we can kill inflation with uh with the fed funds rate right here and they think that we're going to avoid recession and kill inflation which is just like preposterous and so i think it's going to be a hard landing but with nothing I mean, we kind of historically we need hard landings to kind of vet out. It's not good for for the little person, but it's just, you have a lot of people that were making bad, you know, just like this whole this whole crypto thing with SPF. You know, this all there's all these businesses and all these because they had disinflation so long. There are all these toxic like, this God knows how many of these situations that are out there where bad actors have uh, have, have have really ripped off investors and without the tide going out, you don't cleanse that. You probably have 10 Madoffs out there. And so you need to let the tide go. I mean, the last hundred years, the way capitalism worked, the tide goes out and you cleanse the bad actors and there's a a, a nice rebuild out of that. Um, so it's going to probably be a hard landing, but that doesn't mean that we can't invest and kind of work our, our way through it. And, um, but unfortunately, it's just the only way to kill inflation is, is with that hard landing.
0: Yeah, well, like when the tide goes out, we find out who's been swimming naked, um, <laughs> yes, yes. the old adage goes. It also makes me just wonder too, and yeah, um, maybe your thoughts here. Was there something that could have or should have been done? And gosh, let's call it like the last decade plus. Um, we obviously had a decade of um, zero interest rates but was there a time, like, I don't know, like if you have any thoughts on like the last decade plus of policies, um, or maybe we could have avoided this kind of impending iceberg that's out there, if you will, or.
1: Well, it's, it's just like, me. it's like everything else They they've been trying for 20 years and they don't want, when you don't allow the business cycle to function over longer and longer and longer periods of time, you create more and more excesses and, um, and so you create more and more bad, bad behavior. You're not allowed, you know, we called it moral hazard. When Lehman failed, right? There was a there was a lot of people that wanted the government to bail it out. And one of the things I talked about in my book is there was a there was a group group of people in Washington that wanted to let Lehman fail because they they thought it was like this moral hazard moment whereas they bailed it out. Uh, they'd already bailed out countrywide, they essentially bailed out Bear Stearns. And so there was this like growing feeling in the market that they weren't allowing the business cycle to function. And so they let them fail. but then they they took two trillion of two and a half trillion of fiscal monetary and they did you know zero interest rates for all those years. CoVID hit zero interest rates again. and they they probably should have let the, you know when you suppress the cost of capital for longer and longer and longer periods of time by suppressing interest rates, you create all kinds of bad distortions, and now because of inflation, they're forced to let the market discover the true cost of capital, right? And, and and now when that happens, it it blows up things. And we haven't we haven't seen the big blows up blow blow ups yet, but we have had some, some parts in the market like commercial real estate. There's no question a blow up is happening there, but it's it's slower because of the way the market's structured and the financing. Uh, and, and the leveraged loans is a trillion and a half bucks of, of, of wealth in there. There's those are adjustable rates, right? so there's a little, a little bit blow up happening there. And so on the consumer side, you've got auto loans that are it's a lot of a lot of weakness there, and some some prime mortgages and subprime autos. So you've got all these little spots of, of, of weakness, and um, that that's that's where the, the it's kind of like a slow moving crisis that's coming at us.
0: Yeah. yeah, Yes. Slow moving as, as, as you put it. Um, You know, since you also focused a lot on macro, maybe we can kind of tick through some of uh, the different areas. Um, Let's start. I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on energy. Um, What are you thinking about within that space? Is there anything, I guess you have a lot of these conversations with institutional investors. Um, What's kind of top of mind for you as it relates to energy?
1: Well, the natural gas names versus the oil names are trading like the of the cheapest levels of all time versus the versus the oil names. So everybody's like hiding out in in energy oil stocks. Uh, but the natural gas names, because Fed had this big move down, we've had the warmest winter in 20 years globally, and you had this big restocking into that. And then you had the Freeport disaster, which is like this this facility where we were gonna export. Um, a lot of like LNG natural gas, and that facility went down and it created this like huge buildup of natural gas in the United States, even though the planet needed our natural gas. But because of this, it's probably so this you've had this wacky uh, confluence of events that have created like Southwestern Energy, SWN or Intero AR. You've got these stocks that are trading at like very cheap valuations that offer I think tremendous upside for investors over in the next 10 years because you've got this new super highway of demand between the United States and, and Europe that you know it is out there it's coming every year there's Germany just built another three LNG terminals but we had kind of have to build the the highway and that's being built so Chenneer, uh, just made it a, a massive investment uh, late last week. And so between Schneer and the and German government and uh, many other governments in Europe, this six, seven lane highway uh, between the United States and Europe is going to create this you know, massive reservoir of demand for natural gas. So natural gas prices, although they've come down here near $2, they, they probably spend much of the next decade between four and seven, eight, which is on the high end. And so that's one area where I think, you know, right now, a lot of people are hiding out in Exxon and Chevron and there's nothing wrong with buying the dips and some, and some of these things, but I think there's a lot more value in in, in the natural gas space. And then emerging markets, um, the emerging market local currency bond fund, fund from JP Morgan is paying like 6%. It's local currency. So if we go into a, a world where, Europe's doing a little bit better over the next year coming out of the war. There's no question that this is going to be some type of, there's no question, maybe some type of resolution there in the next 12 months. It's just massively unsustainable on all sides and financially. And then um, China's reopening. And so, and the US is weakening relatively, It's kind of last in or first in, uh, first in, first out. So Europe and and Global economy is in a weaker spot last year, U.S. goes in last, so you get a weaker dollar over the next year, not a dollar crash, but that's an environment where your emerging market local currency bond fund is trading below COVID levels. So when we had this global synchronized growth sales pitch from Wall Street banks in 2018 and where the U.S. dollar was weaker and the global currencies were stronger, this type of fund traded near $37, right? And now it's trading at COVID. It traded at 26, and now you're near 24. So baskets of, of bonds that are that are from believe it or not, like emerging markets in some ways are, have better balance sheets than developed markets. It's Crazy! I mean, it's just absolutely crazy to say that, but it's it's the truth. Uh, Mexico bonds have been well, been Mexican equities. So I think there's going to be a, a real renaissance for, and it won't last forever because you can't really like. You can't buy and hold some of these things for long periods of time because uh, there's just too much disruption in in, uh, emerging markets. But I think you could have a nice three, four, five year run where like the EEM, Brazil, EWC, uh, EMLC, you've got these local currency bond funds, equity funds, countries that are long, hard assets like Brazil are just Mm -hmm. naturally the probability of them doing well is, is very high.
0: So, like a, re- a renaissance in emerging market bond funds,
1: bond funds and equity funds. Um, I just like I like that EMLC because it's a local currency. And so, what ha- what's happened is the dollar ripped last year. So a lot of the bonds in that fund were trading at par, and now they're trading in the 80s. And so you have a lot of upside uh, because the bonds are, are are lower in price and six percent coupon. But Brazil, for example, is a country that's max long, uh, a lot of different commodities. And it's got, you've got the United States has to reshore and also build a supply chain that goes north-south, right? in This hemisphere versus the whole east-west supply chain that has existed since, you know, since the last 20 to 20 years. has been built between the United States and China. That's all going to have to be reassembled to some extent north, south, in this part, in this hemisphere. Uh, I sat down. I sat down in um, in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, with Andre Steffes, who's a billionaire. He's a wonderful guy. I go in. I go to his office. and He's like Larry. He signed my book. He's like a big fan of mine. And I you know I did some research on him before the meeting. He's like one of the most successful investors of, of this generation in that part of the world, worth seventeen billion. He's a big fan. I got a kick out of that and, and we talked and he talked you know that was his thesis around this north south supply chain and um and, and countries like brazil are a pretty good place to take advantage of and he's the ceo of btg Pactual, btg Pactual. Yeah, and i said andre what does btg stand for and he said uh better than golden
0: <laughs> well i take it as a joke
1: though <laughs> <laughs> got it but, yeah, but brilliant um,
0: Okay, so this is a way to play, like, wait, I want to hear about the supply chains, because you're, you're just alluding to that, like the conversations you've had. Um, what's the kind of the thought or the thesis there?
1: Well, you've got, um, you know, we have a, a sickening situation where globalization is, is, is a good thing to some extent. But when it's, when it's in place for long periods of time, it, it really drives complacency. And so the U.S. The US took 500,000 jobs. And we exported them around the world, right, the last 20 years. We've decimated the Rust Belt. We have cheap products that come in from all over the world, which is a good thing for consumers in the last 20 years. But the problem is, is that we've decimated the the United States. And we've, as COVID showed, I mean, Bob Craft and the New England Patriots had to to get one of their planes to go over to Asia to get masks for the city of Austin. I mean, that's how bad the situation was. Where so there's a lot of like, whether it be uranium or masks I can name, we can sit here and probably name 70 national security issues with rare earth metals on and on and on. I mean, think of like wind, right? Wind farms need very rare, rare earth metal for uh, the magnets that are inside of these wind farms, right? Or we got some inside of these windmills. And so there's just countless, countless cases of national security, foolish, complacent, horrific risk that's facing the United States. And it's because of this whole east-west supply chain that was working as smooth as silk. And after the Vietnam War, this, you know we we went from a Cold War to globalization. And uh, we really just overdosed on it. And it's just, you know, for the COVID world and and the Ukraine-Russia thing, it's just proven to everybody that you need some type of insurance policy, some north-south supply chain in this hemisphere that backs up. So if your supply chain is too far exposed to China, Russia, or or whatever, whatever the national security component is, whether it be uranium or whatever, uh, we need to have... The supply chain running from Canada, Panama, Mexico, Brazil that, that backs up or shores the risks that we dealt with.
0: Mm-hmm. And also like, um, couldn't that also, I'm just asking like as a follow-on, um, when you reconfigure the supply chains, couldn't that, you also make an argument too, like, well, could also be the end of like cheap goods or inflation again, going back to the inflation thesis that it could be, stickier because things will just be more expensive as well does is that exactly. part of it?
1: it's like a massive regime change where at the end of the day disinflation was uh, an addiction to a global supply chain that's one big component of it there's a lot of other components like technology and we could we sit here and say all kinds of incredible things about technology deflation but there's a large, a whole bunch of other components that have to do with the way the planet works. That um, when we change this, and we near shore, and you know, President Biden, smart thing, he literally took the Trump playbook. And you know, Trump in 2016 came up with all these really, you know, kind of sales pitch ideas for reaching out to middle class voters. And in the end, you can argue whether or not he was successful or not. Some people say he wasn't very successful. But the concept was okay. China, globalization. He, he Trump lectured the Germans. He said you're too exposed to Russia on natural gas. You know, use let's have a let's have a relationship where Germany uh, imports more natural gas from the United States. So Trump had some good ideas, and Biden, the Biden team's done a great job of picking up on those ideas and running with it and repackaging them in a really clever way and probably selling them in a, a, a more sensitive way you know you can make a case so all of that is like you can clearly see the democratic party is embracing these very inflationary trends don't so just think of like president biden bragging about the cost of living adjustments inside the cola and social security and so you've got this massive increase in income that's heading towards social security recipients which is a good thing, right? But it's it's an increase in pay because of inflation. And so you have that big component, you've got near-shoring, uh, you've got, like I said, global supply chains just don't work as well. And so you've got all these um, new factors that are making inflation far more sustainable.
0: Yeah. Um, I didn't ask you this. I kind of probably have a general idea of like, you know, where you are, are you, okay. I, I take it you're, you're usually pretty bearish. How do you, how, where, where do you stand today and how would you contextualize it? Um, I guess like within your career, like what's kind of your, your current, uh, sentiment, if you will, maybe you're bullish, well, maybe you're bearish to like where. Yes. where you-
1: so I, I, you know, I, I was a CNBC contributor for th- seven or eight years and I did, I was thrown my problem The problem with the messaging there is I'm really a value investor. I mean, I love David Einhorn, Greenlight Capital, Buffett. I really respect those types of investors. And what happens is when the Fed, in a disinflationary world, and the Fed can be extremely accommodative, it, it creates a, a landscape where all these wacky types of businesses uh, for long periods of time can get crazy valuations because... The Fed's always there. It's always there buying bonds, always there to QE. But in an inflationary world that's sustainable, the Fed just can't be there in the same way. So st- everything acts differently. So we could go into a period where from 1981 to 19, from 1968 to 80, 1968 to 80, the SP was flat. Okay, and that was an inflationary regime, 68 to 80, roughly flat, flat. And doesn't mean you're bearish, but there's going to be parts of the market that do really well and other parts that like last decade's portfolio probably doesn't do as well because you're not in that disinflationary regime. So everything that worked the last 15 years at a disinflationary in a certain disinflationary regime is not going to work in this time around. And you have all these younger investors they want to go back to the same playbook. They want you can see them this this year. I mean, they're going back. They had a beautiful counter rally in the Nasdaq, but there's a lot of supply up there, and the risk free rate is five percent. And the last couple of times the Nasdaq, all the last times the Nasdaq went to all time highs over the last ten years, you had you had some some overhead supply, but the risk free rate was zero to one percent, and the Fed was doing QE, and that's what. The asset per- and that's what got you through that supply. So now if you have overhead supply, what I mean by that is, you know, you've got the NASDAQ is dead money for two years. The S&P is dead money for two years. And you've got you have a million bucks in the market. You, you were down 40%. So you had your million dollars went down to 600,000. Now your million dollars is back to a million bucks. What are you going to do with a risk-free rate that's 5% and you got, you got your money back? Most likely, you're going to get even and get out and put it into cash. And that's just a common sense thing. If the Fed was doing QE, if the Fed was suppressing interest rates down to 1%, that whole last decade's playbook works really, really well. Uh, but it's just we're just not there.
0: Yeah, the world has changed. Well, Larry, I've really enjoyed having you on, and I feel like I learned a lot. I can't wait to get your new book when it comes out and I'll have to have you on again. But I want to give you a few minutes. Um, You know, if you want to share more about the Bear Traps report or any of your work there, if you want to let folks know where they can pick up your first book um, or follow you on social media. And also, if you have any parting thoughts, anything that's kind of top of mind for you that we didn't bring up um, in this conversation, yeah, please take the next couple of minutes to do so. Well,
1: the, the one last thing is around rare earths and the green revolution. So that's another area that is extremely potentially bullish over the next decade, because there's a a group of companies out there in the uranium space um, in in all kinds of areas that benefit from wind and solar, hecla mining in the silver space. Um, you, You need a massive renaissance in silver demand, copper demand, all these different uranium for nuclear power. So I, I'm extremely bullish in that area. And we've done a lot of work and we work with a lot of investors in our in our live chat. Um, but the, the genesis of what we do is we run the live conversation on Bloomberg with the institutions. 80% of our revenue comes from the institutional investors. What we try to do is, like I said, my goal, because I started off on the retail side, is democratizing information. And we do that through books, like a Colossal or common sense, and like our next book, and we do that through Twitter. Uh, we sure act verb on on Twitter, but we also do it through the bear trap support where we recap that we give we give people a lens on that private club conversation. What are the institutions thinking now versus last week, the week before, and we kind of help the small investor or the high net worth investor, or the family office, or the financial advisor. One thing I'm shocked at, we have a thousand financial advisors that pay us. But our gold level subscription around the country from Merrill Lynch and to from Raymond these guys they're wonderful guys and gals, but they don't trust their own in, in house research, <laughs> and they subscribe to people like Hedge Eye and Bear Traps and Jared Dillion. There's a lot of great Keith McCullough. There's a lot of great great resources out there of people that provide an alternative to Wall Street research, which is kind of an old business model, which I think is breaking down. And that's kind of, that's kind of my mission is just to democratize that information and kind of even the playing field.
0: I love that. Um, Well, Larry McDonald, best-selling author of A Colossal Failure of Common Sense and founder of the Bear Traps Report and also at Convert Bond on Twitter. It has been such a delight having you on the show. I can't wait to have you back on. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and ideas. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Julia. That's great. That's a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, Liz. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.